0: Amen. And as our children go back to the pew or to Children's Church and our choir comes down, I want to ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. We are going to conclude the themes that Jesus started back in chapter 8 with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And those themes are the ideas of suffering and service and sacrifice. And Jesus tells us we have to make sacrifices. He says we have to deny ourselves daily. He tells us that we have to be willing to endure suffering. We have to take up our crosses. And He tells us that we must serve others in His name. He says, follow Me. Follow the example that He sets for each of us. And then Jesus follows up that teaching with the explanation of His impending betrayal, His crucifixion, His resurrection in Jerusalem. And He uses that as an illustration of this life of sacrificial service to which He calls us. And then He takes Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration to reveal the glorious future that awaits everyone who follows Him, a glory that will far overshadow any suffering that we may experience in serving Him. And then as Jesus comes down the Mount, we looked at this last week with the, with, the, with the three, He illustrates the life of faith-filled, prayer-empowered service as he cast a demon from an epileptic boy. And now Jesus is going to follow up that illustration of service with some teachings. Now, this is unusual for Mark. Mark likes to focus on what Jesus does, but here we come into one of the longest sections of teachings of Jesus in Mark's gospel, and he teaches us how we can be servants of God's kingdom, servants who will continue to practice that self-sacrifice, servants who may endure suffering, persecution, and shame. And we know these things. I mean, none of this should be new to any of us that have ever been in church or who know Jesus, but we don't always show that we know these things, right? Sometimes we struggle at following Jesus' example of selfless service. And so this morning, you know, thinking about the Olympics and you think about, you know, uh, especially people with tennis or volleyball, this idea of improving your serve. You know, these Olympians, they have to have trainers and coaches point out weak spots and things are not doing right and they've got to focus on those and they've got to develop the proper disciplines and the proper techniques. Well, this morning, Jesus is going to help us do the same thing. He's going to help us to look at some weaknesses and some bad habits that we have and help us to improve our serve, help us to develop the skills, the attitudes that we need to serve others in His name. And the first thing that we see, He points out our our humility... And tells us, uh, points out our pride, and tells us that we need humility. So we need to replace our pride with humility, and we see that beginning in verse 30. If you look with me, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Then they left that place and they made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise. Three days later, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Jesus makes a second prediction of what he is going to endure and experience in Jerusalem. And remember, they're on their final journey to Jerusalem. They are making their way, and this is kind of their last stop in Capernaum, before they go on. And each time Jesus brings this up, the disciples get a little bit more uneasy. They still don't understand what Jesus means by all of this, and they're afraid of what it means for them. They they fear the implications of this. And they're so afraid, they don't even ask Jesus to explain it here. They're so afraid, they don't even discuss among themselves why they're going to Jerusalem. What will Jesus experience there? But they have no problem discussing their future greatness and glory, do they? Typical, right? They still don't understand that the path to greatness in God's kingdom is through suffering, service, and sacrifice. Not around it. You know, one by one, the disciples' flaws have been kind of unpeeled and revealed for us, right? We, we see their, their prayerlessness and lack of faith. We see their fear. And now Jesus is addressing their pride. And maybe this argument was fueled in part By Peter, James, and John, right? What did did Peter, James, and John just spend time with Jesus doing, right? They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They experienced Jesus in all His glory, something the others didn't experience. And because they were with Jesus there, that also means they missed out on being a part of the failure of the other nine disciples to cast out the demon. So you can just imagine these three, Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James and John. You can just imagine this letting, letting, them, uh, letting this go to their heads. Can't you just hear Peter saying, well, you know, if we had been there, that demon would have been long gone, right? So obviously, the three of us, you know, Jesus took us up on the mountain, not you guys. We've got to be the greatest. And then Peter probably said, and because I'm the leader of the group, obviously I'm the greatest one. To which James and John, the sons of thunder, would have loudly objected, right? So you can just imagine the argument that they've got going on. But they're also influenced by their culture. See, in ancient Judaism, it placed a lot of emphasis on status, on rank. The rabbis taught about the seating order in paradise and how the just would sit closer to God's throne than even the angels. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, they found writings that detailed how the orders of seating at worship and at meals, or how the hierarchy within the community. We're actually there to prepare us for the eternal order because that's the way things would be in heaven. So they're shaped by their culture. And that makes me wonder, how are we shaped by our culture? To think about greatness, right? We can can be consumed about where we are in the pecking order. We struggle with worldly ideas of success and prestige and authority as we heard in our New Testament reading Jesus is aware that we're like this. That we tend to lord authority over other people. We can be quite tyrannical at times. So the disciples were influenced by their culture. They were were clinging to these old ideas about the Messiah. They are still thinking that thrones await them in Jerusalem, not a cross. And we also tend to cling to our culture's expectations for greatness. and What it means to be important. Our, Our culture tells us to Fight for our status. Make sure you know the right people. Get on the inside crowd. Rub elbows with the rich and the powerful. But Jesus says that kingdom values are different. He turns this all upside down. He calls us to a radical servanthood that requires humility and that reaches out to the least of these. To those of low station. To the weak and the small. Which is why Jesus uses a small child. Maybe this was Peter's child. We don't know. Maybe this one of the disciples' children. But he brings this small child and he stands this child in front of them as an illustration that kingdom greatness comes through humility. And by embracing this child, Jesus was communicating something revolutionary because children weren't highly viewed in, Israeli, in Jewish society at the time. They were considered among the lowest elements of society. I mean, think about it. They They, they had no power. No influence. They came with no wealth. In fact, children are are needy, aren't they? Right? Yes, they're needy. (laughs) Especially young children. They don't produce wealth. They consume it. And as they get older, they just consume more and more, don't they? You know, we've already seen how Jesus treated the sick and the outcast. We've seen the inherent worth, value, and dignity. He places on the lame and the deaf and the blind. We've seen how he treats Gentiles and women. And now we see Jesus, Jesus do the same with the weakest, the smallest, the least powerful members of society. Children. And in this parable, Jesus isn't calling us to be childlike. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. He, he will use that illustration later. No, in this parable, he's the example for us, not the child. We are to be like Jesus as we welcome these children, as we welcome those who can do nothing for us in return, those who do not increase our status. We are like Jesus when we welcome them. And and to welcome them or to receive them means to be concerned about them, to care for them, to show kindness to them. So by, by identifying Himself with a powerless child, what Jesus is saying is that when we accept the outcast, When we serve the weak, when we show kindness to the least of these, we are doing these things for Him. It's as if we are serving Jesus. It's as if we are serving God the Father. Which means the opposite. If we fail to do these things, if we refuse or reject those that we consider less than us, that we consider a nuisance, that we consider we don't have the time to deal with you, we in essence are refusing and rejecting God Himself. Greatness in the kingdom is not about position. It's about posture. It's about a posture of humble service to the last and the least. Now Jesus would assume this posture and He would illustrate this for us later as He washes the disciples' feet. And and this was an image that stuck with the disciples and, and and it fueled the early church, culminating in the establishment of the office of deacons. People set aside to serve as Jesus served. In fact, a hundred years after the events in Acts, one of the early church leaders, Polycarp, gave this instruction to churches. He said, likewise must the deacons be blameless, walking according to the truth of the Lord, who is the servant of all. Deacons are to be examples of this kind of humble service. The kind of service that Paul links to Jesus in Philippians 2 when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. That's what deacons exemplify for us. In fact, the word that Mark uses here when Jesus says we are to be a servant of all is the Greek word diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. David Garland writes, a church filled with prima donnas, who want to control everything, rarely ministers effectively to those inside or outside the fellowship. Amen. So as we consider this morning nominating men to serve as deacons, as we engage in that final selection process next month, we don't want prima donnas, and thankfully we don't have prima donnas as deacons. Their wives will keep them in place better than that. Rather, we want to honor the prime servants. Who are those men that are exhibiting for us that attitude of humble service? Because I want our church to be known as a church that receives all people the way we receive children. With no thought of their accomplishments, their influence, or their fame. With no thought about what they can do for us. But simply because they're made in God's image and Jesus loved them enough to die for them. We need to replace our pride with humility. Secondly, We need hospitality rather than prejudice. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever's not against us is for us and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, He will never lose his reward. So again, the disciples, it just doesn't seem to get through their heads sometimes what Jesus is clearly trying to say. And so here's John. After what Jesus just said, John is still wanting to draw lines. Who's in and who's out. It's like he's saying, okay, Jesus, so children are in. I get that. But certainly this stranger over here is out, right? Because he's not one of us. (laughs) Notice John says, Because he wasn't following us, not because he wasn't following Jesus. That's key. And Jesus makes the point that, yeah, the man may not be one of the twelve, but obviously he believed in Jesus. Or else why would he be trying to cast demons out in Jesus' name, much less be successful at it? Obviously this man believed in Jesus. And because this man was helping others in Jesus' name, Jesus says that means you should consider him as a friend to be encouraged. Not discouraged, encouraged to follow me and to continue to serve others in my name. Now I wonder, as I read this, and you have have to wonder, right, is there maybe just a little bit of jealousy at play here? What had the, the disciples just failed to do? Cast out a demon. So don't you think maybe they're just a little bit jealous that here's somebody who's not a part of their group succeeding where they failed? Here, this man that they don't know is casting out demons in Jesus' name, They're, they're rejecting Him because He can do what they couldn't. He was better than they were. They were a little bit irked. They were jealous. And they were prejudiced. And Jesus makes it clear there's no room for either of those in God's kingdom. Rather, we should show hospitality to all of God's people, even those who are different from us, even those who do things differently than us. Even those who are not a part of our particular tribe. And this is a real problem in our churches today and in our country today. This idea of tribalism, right? This idea that we, and when we're becoming increasingly divided in our country, we're being divided and pitted against each other. We're put into all these little subgroups based on race and gender and socioeconomic class and, and are you rural or are you urban or you know, what are your political leanings or, or on and on and on. When you hear people talk about intersectionality which is a core tenet of critical race theory, that's what it's all about. It's about identifying yourself in some minute, small subgroup based on various issues and immutable characteristics and how unfairly you've been treated, and then you see everyone else as others, even as enemies and oppressors. That's where we are as a country today. And churches aren't much better. And we express this through this this competitiveness. Right? When we compare what another church in our area is doing to our area. And listen, as the youth pastor here and as the pastor here, I've heard it all. about. well, this church is doing this and that. And here this church is doing such and such. Why don't we do that? We're not in a competition, folks. We're not in a competition. We should not resent when another church is successful at something. We shouldn't see it as a detriment to our growth and success because a fellow church is growing or succeeding in the kingdom of God. A rising tide lifts all boats. Listen, if they are a Bible-believing, New Testament church, if they affirm the historic doctrines of the faith, we should celebrate with our sister churches when they are doing well. Amen? Amen? And our fellow Christians the same way. We're not competing with them, and we certainly shouldn't exclude them from fellowship and worship and service with us. We have to remember that Jesus is trying to teach the apostles that it's not their power, but God's power through them that casts out demons. It's not our power, but God's power through us that convicts the lost and saves sinners. It's God's power, not our power, that grows a church. And thankfully... Praise the Lord, God is at work in more places in this community and world than just 253 Jackson Street, Thompson, Georgia. Listen, being a follower of Jesus is not about an entitlement. It's about serving. Yes, Christianity is exclusive in that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to God the Father. But Christianity is inclusive in the way that whosoever will may come. The door is open to everyone who will repent of their sins and confess their faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, it's interesting. This little story is very similar to one that happened between Joshua and Moses in Numbers chapter 11. Moses had called 70 of the elders of Israel and brought them to the tent of meeting and God was going to put some of His Spirit on these 70 men to prophesy and to help lead the people of Israel but two people, two men stayed in the camp. And when the Spirit of God fell on these seven and they started to prophesy, the two men that were still in the camp they didn't come out with them, these two men started to prophesy as well. Well, Joshua got word of this and he was incensed. He tried to silence them. He went to Moses and said, Moses, you've got to tell these men to stop prophesying. And listen to what Moses said. Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place His Spirit on them. This isn't something to resent. This is something to rejoice. We want more people sharing Christ. We want more people in ministry and service, not less. That should be our prayer and our attitude. We must be open to all who are called and used by God, not just those that we know and like. Not just those who are like us. And listen, we need to be open to all forms of ministry, not just the big and splashy, but even the small, the quiet, The the behind-the-scenes. Listen, not only are we not competing with other churches, but Sunday school is not in competition with worship. The basket ministry is not in competition with the bicycle ministry. Honduras is not in competition with another mission trip. Listen, Jesus says whether you're casting out demons or offering a cup of cold water in My name, if you're serving Me, you'll be blessed. It doesn't matter who the other person is. It doesn't matter how God has called us to serve. We need humility and we need hospitality. Third, we need honesty. Honesty rather than pretense. Jesus goes on in verse 42, "...but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea." Now, it's easy when you read little ones here to assume that Jesus is referring back to that child. But he's not. The immediate context of this verse is the man the disciples were trying to stop from casting out demons in Jesus' name. What Jesus means here by little ones are those who are in the faith, but not in the group of the twelve. What we might say today is what He means by little ones are those who are little ones in the faith, the babes in Christ. Those new believers who are just beginning their journey of spiritual maturity. Those are the little ones He's referring to. And the Greek word translated causes to fall away or makes stumble is the word we get scandalized from. In other words, Jesus is saying it's to offend in such a way as to turn people away from Him. Not, just, not talking about just making somebody mad. Not talking about just you know, rubbing somebody the wrong way. He's talking about offending someone to the point that you turn them away from the church and from Jesus. Given the context, Jesus is saying we need to live an honest faith and put away any pretense that somehow we're better than others. That we've got everything figured out. That these younger believers should leave the real ministry to us older folks who've been there, done that, and know what we're doing. That these new church members just need to bide their time. That's the kind of attitude we're to put away. So in a way, Jesus is still dealing with this tendency we have to label people. This us versus them mentality where we misjudge other people's weaknesses while ignoring our own or as Jesus would later say in the Sermon on the Mount, we get too fixated on the speck of dust in their eye and we ignore the log in our own. Listen, when we can't get along with each other in our own church, when we argue over who's the greatest, when we can't get along with fellow believers outside of our church, don't you think these things cause people to stumble? Don't you think this turns people away from Jesus? We need to put away the pretense and live honest and humble lives of introspection, removing with surgical precision anything in our life that causes others or ourselves to stumble. And if we don't, Jesus says the consequences can be severe. Now this illustration was very vivid to the disciples because it wasn't long ago... That these Galileans rose up against Rome, and you know what the Roman authorities did to the ringleaders? They tied millstones around their necks and threw them into the sea. So, this was a current event that Jesus was referencing here. That's a pretty severe consequence. How many of us have turned people off to Jesus because we harbored an unforgiving spirit? Because we were spreading gossip because we used dishonest dealings in our business with someone, we used vulgar language, how many have we turned away by such behavior never to come to Christ? In essence, Jesus is telling us, walk the talk, practice what you preach, because the world is watching. Younger Christians are watching our example of what it means to worship And to serve and to lead. And I pray that we as a church will become only increasingly more welcoming to those who are hungry and hurting and seeking after God. That we will be a church that raises up the next generation of servants and leaders among new believers. Listen, we need godly men and women who have been there, done that. We need godly men and women who have taught Sunday school, they've worked with youth and children, they've sung in the choir, they've served as deacons. We need you not to bow out but to take these younger Christians and these new members under your wing and mentor them and model for them what it looks like to serve Jesus. We need honesty, hospitality, and humility. And fourth, we need holiness rather than sinful pleasure. Jesus goes on in verse 43, If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed that have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. First of all, let me just say this. This is proof positive that Jesus taught about and believed in the reality of hell. In fact, Jesus taught about hell more than he did heaven. Hell is a real place. But secondly, what Jesus is doing here, He is shifting His focus from this scandalously causing others to stumble to the danger that we can cause ourselves to stumble. We can cause ourselves to sin. And Jesus uses this stark imagery to illustrate the severity of sin and how serious we should flee it. Now, now, of course, Jesus is not literally telling us to cut off our hands and feet and gouge out our eyes. He's using this horrific hyperbole to highlight that hell is so bad we should pay any price to avoid it. And at the same time, He's illustrating that it's impossible for us to keep ourselves from sin. Kent Hughes explains it this way, such mutilation is only contrary to the, is not only contrary to the Scripture... He says, but it is possible to be minus hands, feet, eyes, and to be neutered and still be the most lustful, materialistic, proud person in town. He's right. So what Jesus is illustrating is that that the cost of sin is so colossal, the eternal consequences are so dire, that our only hope to escape hell and overcome our sin is Him. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price we could never pay. He died on the cross, the perfect sinless sacrifice, and He overcame death, hell, and the grave so that you and I could be saved from hell and set free from our sins. He came to break the chains and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, the Bible often talks about sin in terms of our eyes and our hands and our feet because these are sort of a representative of the totality of life, right? Our feet is where we go, our hands are what we do, our eyes are what we see. And notice that Jesus says this is a problem we have to deal with ourselves. He doesn't tell us to gouge out somebody else's eye or cut off somebody else's foot. We have to deal with the log in our own eye. This is a call to serious personal introspection. Now, Paul uses the language of having old, ill-fitting clothes, this old wardrobe that once we're saved, we want to toss it away and put on the new wardrobe that Christ gives us. He says in Ephesians 4.22, Take off your former way of life the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. In Colossians 3, he uses language about putting to death our earthly nature, putting away sinful attitudes so we can put on our new self. So let's think about that. Are there places where your feet carry you that you have no business being? Are there events that you attend that present you with temptations that you have a hard time dealing with? Are there hidden activities or habits which occupy you? And perhaps if other people knew, you'd be embarrassed. Where does your mind go when it's in neutral? When you're not doing or thinking about anything in particular? Think about the books or magazines you read. The websites you scroll. The TV shows and movies you watch. The music you listen to. The jokes you tell. Think about the things you like, share, and post on social media. If our answers leave us feeling guilty, if you're squirming a little bit in your seat, Jesus says you must go to extremes to rid yourself of these things that cause you to stumble. But the metaphor reminds us that as God works in us, as we grow in our faith, as we are conformed to the image of Christ, sometimes it costs us. Sometimes it's painful, but it's worth it. See, Jesus promises us that when we suffer pain, rejection, or persecution for Him, whatever sacrifices we make for the kingdom, He promises He'll make it worth it. That brings us to the last two verses. Look at verse 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be, peace, be at peace with one another. The last thing he tells us here, to improve our serve, sometimes we have to hurt, and we have to endure that hurt, so that we can be a healing presence in this world. Now, there's a Jewish proverb that says that the world cannot survive without salt. And that's certainly true. But among the Jewish people in particular, salt served three purposes. And the first purpose was in sacrifices. The Mosaic Law commanded that their sacrifices be salted as a symbol of purification. So we sometimes have to endure hurt, endure sacrifice, endure suffering, so we can be a healing presence in the world for purity. We can be a purifying presence. You know, as as you all know, salt promotes healing. When salt gets in a wound, it hurts. And if you've got a wound and you're in a saltwater pool or out in the ocean for a while, you can kind of tell it sort of starts to stimulate that healing. The same should be true of us. And our lives should be offered up to God as a living sacrifice. Paul says this in Romans 12.1. He says, In view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pure, and pleasing to God. Now Jesus takes this metaphor of salt and sacrifice and He mixes it with a refiner's fire. He says that the salt that purifies us is the salt of suffering. Now, Peter picks this up in 1 Peter chapter 4 where he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. The fiery ordeal. As if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with the great joy when His glory is revealed. So when we suffer for Christ, it has a purifying effect on us. It purifies our heart, our motives, our priorities. Come into line and we can better offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. But secondly, salt was also used for preservation. Think about it this way. God has placed the church in this world to preserve what is good in it. Can you imagine how much worse this world would be with no Christians in it? With no Christian influence, with no church in this world? It would be hell on earth. So if you're salty, the people around you should know it you got salt in your food you can tell it's in there right our presence should quicken the conscience of the people around us when we're around we should help elevate the conversation listen you know as a preacher i get this a lot too you know somebody you know, might tell a, a dirty joke and they, oh i'm so sorry preacher or they might let a bad word slip oh i'm so sorry maybe you've experienced that people change the way they talk around you that's a good thing Don't wear that as a mark of shame. Don't be embarrassed by that. We should lift the conversation when we're around. We should help to restrain corruption and promote honesty. Because the churches in America, this country's moral compass should put point more in line with God's Word. We are here to preserve. And thirdly, salt was used to symbolize peace. Jesus tells us at the very end, be at peace with one another. Now, what does this have to do with salt? Salt was used in covenants in the ancient world. A covenant was an agreement between two parties that they they would benefit one another, they would prosper one another and be at peace. They were entering into this relationship of trust and because salt was so valuable and essential to life, it was used as a part of that ceremony. Now, remember what started this whole conversation. Way back up here in verse 32 and 33. What started all this? The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. About who was in and who was out. About what kind of service carries the greatest prestige. And so Jesus here at the end is calling us to be agents of peace. To be peacemakers. To live as family. To consider others as more important than ourselves. To look out not just for our own interests, but the interests of our brothers and our sisters. We are to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. One of the things I take away from this passage is that Jesus believes, despite our frequent failures, despite all of our weaknesses, that we can have a healing, preserving influence on those around us and in our world. Jesus calls us. He equips us to bring flavor to life. He expects us to cause the world around us to be thirsty for Him. And how do we do that? We do that by serving other people as if we were serving Jesus because we are. Are you seeking to be served and be first? Or have you embraced the radicalness of servanthood? Is your attitude grudging and suspicious and prejudiced of others? Or are your arms open to all believers and to meeting the needs of those that God brings before you, opening your arms to them as if you were your own children? Is your attitude exclusive, narrow, cliquish? Or do you have the informed tolerance of Christ, who welcomes everyone who comes to Him in humble confession, repentance, and faith. Let's work on improving our serve, our serve to each other, our serve to our community and our world, and our serve to our Lord. Listen, this morning Jesus stands ready with open arms to receive whoever will come. Like a child, He asks you to come Jesus loves you as His creation, but He wants to love you as His child. Maybe this morning you need to come to Him in that childlike faith. You need to trust Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to erase your past, to give you a fresh start, to welcome you into the family of God as His son or daughter. As we stand to sing in a moment, I invite you to come to place your faith and trust in Jesus. And we as a church stand ready with open arms to receive you, to come and make that public profession of faith in Jesus. Maybe you're already a Christian, but you've never been baptized. You want to come and be baptized in the name of Christ. Or you want to come with your family and move your letter from a church of like faith and order to unite with us because you believe this is where God wants you to serve and learn and grow. We stand ready as a church with arms open to receive all who will serve the Lord. Listen, remember, it's not about your ability to, It's about your availability. It's not about your position. It's about your posture. It's not about the size of the task that you perform. It's about the size of the God who works through us. And if God is calling you to serve in some way, we want to help you to be obedient to Him. Would you stand and pray with me, Father? We are so grateful for Your great love for us, the mercy. Our sins are so many, but Your mercy... Is so much more. And if there's anyone here today that needs to put their faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, confessing their sin and asking for forgiveness, I pray they would come today and begin a new life as a son or daughter of God. I pray if there's anybody that needs to come and, and unite with this church, Lord, or just come and rededicate their life to being a servant after Jesus Christ a servant who is humble, a servant who, prefer, who, who pursues holiness a servant who is honest and hospitable, a servant that wants to be a healing presence in this world. God, may they come and use this altar to pray and renew their walk with You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.